From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. Today, we're doing something a little different. Bear with me for a sec. I was on a train not long ago, traveling from New York to New Haven. I was heading up for my first class of the semester. Every first class, I teach the pilot script of The Sopranos, mostly because I think it's just about the greatest pilot script ever written. Apologies to the pilots of The West Wing, The Americans, Cheers, and The Wonder Years, which have all got to be top five. So I'm rereading the script on my laptop, and suddenly there's this stranger lurking over my shoulder. He's got no shame about spying what's on my screen. He asks me why I'm reading The Sopranos. I tell him, but he's not really listening because he just wants to show me something. Take a look at this, he says. And he whips out his iPhone excitedly and starts showing me photos of him with cast members from the show. There he is with Polly Walnuts, with Bobby Bacala, with Meadow. He's this 30-something guy from Queens, and he's as giddy to show me these photos as if he's a new father showing me pics of his infant daughter. The photos have been taken at the dedication of James Gandolfini Street in New Jersey. He traveled from Connecticut for it because he's obsessed with The Sopranos, his all-time favorite show. I would bet this is not an uncommon story. The Sopranos inspires devotion in its fans, unlike almost any other show. And it's not a cultish devotion for a show that didn't get the respect it deserved when it aired, like my so-called life or Freaks and Geeks. It's devotion the way people are devoted to James Joyce or Picasso. A recognized, brilliant piece of art with a legion of fans who still love it. A few years ago, Rolling Stone made an exhaustive list of the 100 greatest TV shows of all time. All the usual suspects were represented. The Wire, Breaking Bad, Seinfeld, Cheers. But is there any question where they ranked The Sopranos? It was number one. The greatest show in history. But we don't need Rolling Stone to tell us that. The Sopranos was nominated for 112 Emmys. It was the first cable show to win Best Drama. The reviews were so ecstatic, they even became the subject of an SNL spoof. The series kicked the door down for all the brilliant cable shows that followed and have become the defining art form of the 21st century. I know lots of people who are currently re-watching the entire series because it's the 20th anniversary of The Sopranos' debut on HBO. The way the show came into being is a great lesson for writers about how to turn the personal into the professional. After a career as a staff writer on popular but often, you know, forgettable shows like The Night Stalker or The Rockford Files, David Chase decided he wanted to create a more personal show, one about his own family. Chase's family happened to be in the eyeglass business. When he was young, the business created outsized conflict among his cousins, uncles, his father, and his mother. The dominant presence in Chase's life has always been his mother. Norma Chase was insecure, passive-aggressive, and domineering. Chase says she ruled the house by threat of filibuster. You did what she wanted because it was easier than listening to her complain. Here's the crucial thing. Sadly, Chase has always believed that his mother hated him. Soon after her death, trying to come up with a pitch for a new series, Chase decides to take his wife and his son to Rome. He's sitting at a cafe across from the Pantheon, drinking a glass of champagne, when he has the brainstorm that will change countless lives. How can he turn his family drama into something with enough stakes and excitement to carry a TV series? 
he realizes he can change the eyeglass business to organized crime, which is a profession familiar to people from his neighborhood. And instead of a mother who hates her son, he creates a mother who puts out a hit on her son. The Sopranos is bored. Today, April 4th, is actually the 20th anniversary of the finale of the first season, an episode called I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano, an extraordinary episode. In honor of the date, we're going to replay our conversation with Terry Winter, my first ever guest on this show. Terry made the leap from low-level writer in The New Adventures of Flipper to writer on The Sopranos. He rose through the ranks on staff until he and Matt Weiner became the two key Sopranos writers under David Chase. Happy anniversary to one of the most important shows in history. Here's Terry Winter. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft for their help getting the word out about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and much more. I want to start off with something from your career that I'm really fascinated by. While you were working on a sitcom, I think it was uh, Flipper maybe, you got yourself a meeting with David Chase. You pitched him some ideas, which he liked, and he offered you a freelance episode of The Sopranos. Now, Chase had no obligation to hire you on his staff if he didn't like the script you turned in. This feels like the most high-stakes tryout a writer could possibly have. If you (laughs) killed it with your freelance, which I imagine you only had a couple weeks to write, you could get hired on The Sopranos, and it could change your professional life in a massive, massive way. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it was like writing that freelance episode with all of that pressure and if i have the story straight uh the story is pretty straight i was actually writing on the pjs at the time which was a uh an animated uh series that a murphy starred in uh it was like a a claymation series that fox did uh you know and i was was very very aware of the stakes involved uh with this opportunity i was given to write this episode by that point in my career i'd already been working about six years steadily, and I had been bouncing back and forth between crappy dramas and crappy sitcoms, although The PJs was actually a very funny show. That was that was pretty good. But I really uh, became aware of The Sopranos uh, about a year earlier. My agent sent me the pilot episode, which I watched, and of course, like the rest of the world, I thought was extraordinary, yeah. and I, I just knew in my heart I could write that show. You know, given my background and, and everything else. But for whatever reason, I did not get an opportunity. David had already hired his first year staff. So when season two came along, I did get an introduction to David. We met, we talked. Um, you know, the great thing about David, uh, for me particularly, was that he didn't really care so much about what your prior credits were. Hmm. A lot of showrunners wouldn't even take a meeting with somebody that had a list of credits like mine, which included Flipper, as you mentioned, <laughs> Zena, Warrior Princess, Sister, Sister, Diagnosis, Murder. David didn't care about any of that. He he in, he he heard I was a good writer, and he wanted to meet me, and he wanted to talk to me and see what, what made me tick personally, which wow. was great. You must have been and, so uh, nervous going into that meeting. Did you prepare a you know, story ideas? I, you know, not really. You know, I, I, I just, again, you know, maybe I was overly confident, but I just knew in my heart that I would click with him, and I knew I was right for the show. Uh-huh. I, just, I just knew it. I understood those characters really well, and I, I think I had the confidence to know that he would respond to that, and he would get that initially uh, at our first meeting, and he did. Uh, but, you know, it was interesting, you know, David, you know, like a lot of showrunners, you know, had been burnt before. He actually is a good, it's an interesting uh, example. Yeah. He sort of fell victim, I think, in the first season to hiring people, a lot of people based on their credits. A lot of the people who were on staff 
in their first year, in the first year of The Sopranos, had credits like ER, NYT, PD Blue. These were the big hot shows. But then David ended up letting them go. They didn't work out. You know, for me as a showrunner, and, and the red flag is always, when you see somebody who uh, did one year on NYPD Blue, and now they're looking for another job. The big question is, why are you leaving NYPD Blue? Right, right. Generally, you get on a hit show, you don't leave. And the list of the list is you're kicking and screaming on your way out the door. So that's always a red flag. So you see people that, that end up, you know, they end up getting hired on good shows, and they, their resume is peppered with good shows that they only last a year on. That that should tell you something. Right. Anyway, David, you know, fell victim to that uh, maybe, and then. Now, rather than just make a commitment where you'd have to hire somebody for the entire year, he decided to give me a freelance episode. So I had uh, actually, when I started writing, somebody had recommended that I take an acting class, hmm. not because I wanted to be an actor, but they, they said, look, it's very, it's, it's really helpful for a writer to walk in an actor's shoes to sort of understand yeah. what you're asking. Of yeah, I actor. did that too. Yeah, yeah which is, and I agree, it is helpful. I learned a lot. I learned mostly that I can't act. <laughs> so. Um, but it was really helpful in my writing. And we talked about the idea that Christopher might take an acting class, and that, that became part of the first episode I ever wrote. Oh, wow. So when I left there, <clears throat> I knew the idea was going to be that if he liked my script, I would potentially get an offer to write on the show. Uh, but I had a full-time job already. I was working on the PJs, and that was a you know a long day. You know, we, were in, we would start up around 10 in the morning and very often go to 2 in the morning. So I just knew you know, that going into this, Excuse me. The stakes were very high, right? But that this potentially was a career-changing and life-changing opportunity. Yep. So uh, it, it was really uh, up to me to make it happen and make it work. So I was getting up at three thirty in the morning, oh my God. and I would work for two weeks from three thirty in the morning till about nine, when I'd have to leave for my other job. And I do that, and I was just—I just put everything I had into it. I knew oh I had to bring my A game. I mean, this was it. Um, what That's I crazy. found out later, at the same time, is David had actually done the same thing with a writer named Todd Kessler. Todd went on to create the show Damages, also Bloodlines, uh, with his brother and a, and, a, and a writing partner. So I now became aware that there was another guy out there competing for a job. And I thought to myself, erroneously, oh, my God, it's between me and this guy. Hmm. So I had some inside information uh, from somebody that was already on staff. Who, you know, when, when we both handed in our scripts. I said, how's the other guy's script? And he said, actually, it's really good. And, and David likes yours, too. It didn't occur to me that David could hire both of us, right. which, is what he, which is what he ended up doing. But I was you know, terrified that it was going to be, he's going to hire the other guy and not me. Yeah, of course. And uh, that became it. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, luckily, you know, I, I come into this business with a really, really strong work ethic, you know, just based on a life of, you know, working my way through college, working my way through law school, working as a lawyer. So the idea of getting up at 3.30 in the morning to get something that I wanted was fine. I mean, I had no problem. I do it again. I do it to this day. And I mean, how how long how long did you have 3.30 to 9.30 a.m.? Was that two weeks, I, three I, weeks? Two weeks, two weeks to write the script. Yeah, wow. two weeks to hand it in. Yeah. And after a full day um, on another writing staff, your brain worked at 3.30 in the morning? I mean, do you, you remember know, where yeah, you were? Just, Would you go uh, into the yeah. office? <laughs> no, I was working out of my apartment. Uh, I, I lived at an apartment. I don't know how familiar you guys are with uh, Los Angeles. I lived in an area called Brentwood. Sure. And then uh, we worked in Burbank. So I would get up at 3.30. I had an office in my apartment. Uh -huh. I'd write, write until I had to leave and then go. And then, you know, I just, I just, you know, for probably functioning on a couple of hours sleep. And then I think I probably had... 
two weekends in there that that allowed me to catch up and Jeez. you know maybe write with a clearer head. And were these were you writing stories that you had pitched Chase in your meeting, or was some of the stuff you were coming up with, uh, you know, on the fly? Well, the acting storyline was something we pitched. I pitched to David when we met, and then before I went off to write the script, we came up with an outline in the room. So it was me, David, Robin Green, and Mitch Burgess, uh-huh. uh, who basically beat out the entire episode. And mm-hmm. the episode was called Big Girls Don't Cry. Sure. Uh, it, it involved the uh, character Furio, who, who had just come over from Italy, and Tony wasn't really sure if this guy had what it takes. And then, of course, at the end, he has them you know, trash this whorehouse or a guy that owes him money. And turns out Furio is a complete maniac. And uh, Tony is, is very satisfied that he has what it takes to, to be part of that that group. So that storyline was was beat out in advance in a in a very broad strokes outline. Mm-hmm. So I had that to work off of. And then, as you're writing it, are you sort of desperately trying to write in Chase's voice, or are you trying to bring you know your own voice to the table so that he sees you know you've got something to contribute? Um, that feels like a very tricky line to walk. Yeah, I think it's a combination. I mean, part of the job of joining a staff, part of the job of any TV writer is to mimic the show that you're writing. Uh, that's a, a really important skill. I, I had the benefit of having had the entire first season of The Sopranos already air, so I knew what those those right. characters sounded like in particular, the nuance of the difference between Uncle Junior and Christopher and Paulie. They all have their own way of speaking, their own characters, their own way of thinking. You know, I always say the best... Examples of a TV or a TV show is you should be able to look at a an episode of The Sopranos. If I took the slug lines away that told you who was speaking, just by the dialogue alone, you should be able to tell me who that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's, that's a really well drawn character, and that's the difference between a, a show that really pops and one that doesn't. You know, if everybody sounds the same, right. it's not nearly as realistic or entertaining. So I had that, and I also did have my own. POV, you know, I, I, I kind of grew up in and around an area that had people like the characters on The Sopranos living there. So kind of by osmosis, I understood that psychology and I understood what these people sounded like and how they thought. I can't say the same about writing for Flipper. I had no idea what a marine <laughs> biologist might say to somebody. And it was really, really challenging to write a show like that. But Sopranos, I, I almost felt like I was t- taking dictation from people in the sky because I wow. just those characters would start talking to me so quickly. Wow, that's a good feeling. Um, when you were in this incredible two-week period, did the other writers or your bosses on the PJs know what you were up to? No, nobody had any idea. Uh, because then step two of that was once I got the offer, I then had to ask my bosses on the PJs to let me out of my contract to go right. right. And that was a whole other issue because people had been leaving the show. Uh, it was a pretty large writing staff. I think there were like 18 writers. Sometimes sitcoms do have wow. massive staffs. And the PJs, you know, unfortunately, uh, we worked grueling hours. It was not particularly well run. It was a very funny show, and the guys who ran it were great. It just wasn't managed very well. And there were many, many mornings where I drove home with the sun coming up. And it just such wow. a shouldn't be. So it's a really hard life, particularly people who had – I didn't have kids at the time. But, you know, people had families and stuff. It was hard. So people were trying to – were leaving the show. Right. And as I was working, you know, in the months leading up to the Sopranos thing, two or three writers had already left. So when I did get the Sopranos gig, I had to go into – actually, it was Larry Wilmore – who was, hmm. who ran the show and I and I said I, I knocked on his door I said I need to talk to you and he just went he just looked at me and said you're not leaving oh, <laughs> I said can you can you just hear me out and he's like god damn it what 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 show is it I said it's The Sopranos 
And he went, oh, God damn it. Really? I said, yeah. He goes, well, he said, I'm not going to be the asshole who prevented Terry Winter from working on wow. the So, okay. And uh, I said, thank you. And this is an idea of how dated this was. He said, well, you have to get me videotapes for the whole first season. <laughs> and I right. said, okay, you got it. So videotapes it was. And wait, so back then, I, I'm trying to remember. So this was um, the second season. And was Sopranos the phenomenon that it became yet? Did it, people it, get it, it? it? The first season had just, uh, I, actually, I started writing my script when the last three episodes of season one were airing for the first time. Okay. And then it became, it actually caught on in its second viewing. The people who saw it initially, the groundswell started and started telling their friends. So it was when ACO re-ran it immediately, that's when it really started to grow. Right. And by the time season two started, when I, when I came on staff, I remember we were uh, filming on a location somewhere and Michael Imperioli and Dre DiMatteo came out of their trailers and there was a crowd of people and we had to get security, and, and they got a huge round of applause. <laughs> I remember Michael Imperioli telling me, when we, we were filming season one, people had no idea who we were or what we were doing. Now, they, you could see the look on their faces. They, they were becoming stars, and it was, it was really wow. amazing to witness that from the sidelines to see that happening. It's amazing. And just, uh, I'm picturing you, you know, 3.30 in the morning waking up to write, to, you know, go into the next room, I assume, you know, pouring coffee down your throat to write. You know, this episode that could absolutely change your entire life. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the fact that you were able to do it, you were able to deliver and wrote a script that Chase obviously loved. What was it like? You handed it in, and how soon after did he say, I'm hiring you on staff? Uh, it was probably a, a few days later. Oh, my he God. Called me, uh, he called me at the PJs, and uh, he offered me a job. And, you know, the, the, the weird, the hierarchy in, in writing, uh, on writing staffs is, is it staff writer, story editor, co-producer, uh, et cetera, or executive story right. editor, which is like a glorified story, on and on and on. So because I had been going back and forth between dramas and sitcoms, I was kind of stuck at the co-producer level. So I'd be a co-producer on a sitcom. And then I'd move over to a drama and I'd say, well, I want to be promoted to the next level. And I'd say, well, yeah, but you were on a, you were on a drama. This is a sitcom. So I continually, about four times in a row, I kept making lateral moves, co-producer at the co-producer level. So finally I get the Sopranos offer, and David Chase offers me, uh, in effect, a demotion to executive mm -hmm. story editor. And I remember calling my agent, and I said, I, I can't go backwards. And my agent You were going to well, turn this, it down, the Sopranos? Well, I did turn it down. Oh, my uh, God. And I, my agent said, well, this is the Sopranos. I said, I know, but I, I said, I just... I, I just can't do this. And this is, was, was really terrifying. My own agent said, I can't advise you. You have to make this decision wow. on, your, on your own. I've and I said, that. okay. And I called David, and um, I think my voice probably went up about three octaves. <laughs> I said, I can't take this job. I'm sorry. Right. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I, I said David, look, I, I am you know a grown man. I've been at the co-producer level for years. I cannot... Psychologically, I cannot look myself in the mirror and take a step backwards. I'm really sorry. I want, oh my God. I want nothing more than to write on your show. I know I can do a great job, but I can't take this job. And he went, huh, uh, let me call you back. And I hung up, and I, I, I went in the bathroom, and I thought, I just turned down a job on the fucking Sopranos. And uh, it was the longest 15 minutes of my life. And I can't believe you didn't minutes. go kill yourself. That's yeah, well, insane. I, I, if this call hadn't come, and the assistant said, David Chase is on the phone, and I came back on. He said, all right, you got it. 
my and god. And I said, okay, thank god, I thank god. And uh and that was it and that was a question of, you know, then wow. getting out of the show, but uh, getting out of the PJs. That's that's incredible. I didn't even know that part of the story. That's absolutely amazing. Wow. Good for you. I don't know what the lesson is. Stick up for yourself. I don't even know if um, I, I <laughs> so would not recommend that advice to anybody. You're yeah, offered a job well, on the greatest show of all time. My own agent didn't recommend it, but yeah, look, I, I know myself really well. Yeah. Uh, you know, as it turned out, that was exactly the right thing to say to David. He totally understood uh, interesting. it. You know, especially a guy. You know, the show that's so much about psychology and how people think and feel. You know, and I said, I, 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 I can't do this. You know, wow. and and he got it. And he understood. Love it. I'm amazing. All right. Um, so the life of a TV writer, which is you know something I hope to talk a lot about on this podcast, it can be at times pretty emotionally brutal. Um, a close friend who's written on a lot of broadcast shows, uh, we talk about it as a exercise in daily humiliations. So I'm curious, what part of the very long process from generating ideas in the writer's room to locking picture do you feel, in general, the most creatively satisfied? When in the process do you feel, you know, creatively the happiest? When we as a group, uh, meaning my writing staff and I, crack a story and it, it beats out into a satisfying episode with a beginning, middle, and end. And, you know, just, just in, in the outline. When we crack the outline, right. we, go, we, we got it. And, and that's usually, you know, after weeks of sitting around a table together, batting ideas around, uh, you know, it's very much like a, uh, you know, a basketball game where, you know, somebody will pass you the ball and then you'll pass it to somebody else and then they'll, they'll slam it. You know, you go, oh, okay, great, that worked. You know, that's when, you know, it's, it's, it's the most satisfying when the group is really functioning and everybody is sort of, it's like a, a, a you know, group of jazz musicians and everybody's sort of riffing and then suddenly you hear it and you go, oh, that's it. Uh, that to me is, is the job and that's the, the time when you go, oh, wow, this is, this is what we're here for. This is what all of this sitting around the table and bullshitting and telling stories, this is what it's about. And now it works and you go, yeah, I read through that outline and go, yeah, that's an episode of our show. And then from there, you know, obviously takes on a life of its own. Right. Well, I mean, how long does it take for that kind of um, teamwork uh, to, you know, be created? Is that first season? Is that early on? Is that does that take a few years? Yeah, yeah it depends. I mean, it, it all depends on on getting the right group of people. I mean, you've got to get the right staff together and, you know, assembling, you know, the right personalities. I mean, it's really tricky, you know, to get five or six people, you know, in a drama room, you know, each of whom, you know, are at different levels, you know, in their career yeah. uh, as writers, each of whom bring different personalities and different perspectives together. And, you know, you're, you're almost casting the writer's room with, with people who have different strengths and different, uh, different points of view. Uh, sometimes it clicks right away. Sometimes you have to mix and match and sometimes people don't work out. Sometimes people leave for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, in terms of the actual story, sometimes they come together really easily and sometimes you'll be in there for a month and, and you think it's never going to happen and it finally does. And, uh, it, it really is all different, but you know, the idea, I think mostly, you know, and again, when I put together a writer and again, I, I owe so much to David Chase who, who really, you know, I, I got to learn by example about how he did it. Just, you know, people who are really willing to share, really willing to open up uh, their veins, so to speak, psychologically and really be uh, comfortable in a room where they can share intimate details of their lives and tell stories about things that happened to them. And that's the stuff we make TV episodes about. And if you're not willing to share, you're not helping me. Right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, you know, people obviously need to feel very comfortable in the room in order to be able to share. Um, yeah. And you have to create that environment. You have to make right. it a, a safe place where people can say, hey, 
you know, I'm going to tell you the worst thing I ever did to somebody or the right. most horrible thought, thing I ever thought or the meanest thing I ever did. And that's all that's all what we write about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been in some writers rooms that have been just awful and some that have been fantastic. And I think it always comes down to who the boss is, you know, who the showrunner is and how yeah. they run the room. Yep. Um, I find that if, you know, if, if the showrunner is just really always getting on us and just being incredibly critical, you know, you do sort of the bare minimal amount of work. But if the showrunner is someone that you really want to succeed for, who you really want to impress and you want to do a good right. job for, then, yeah, you'll work until, you know, sure. the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, okay. But so when you're not in the room, I'm curious um, about your writing habits, you know, when you're on deadline, I mean, I'm sure it goes all out the window, but when you do have some flexibility, I'm curious about, you know, ideally where you like to write, what time of day do you prefer is, I assume three thirty is not the optimal <laughs> time to write. No, it's, no, it's not. Uh, I do need to be awake though. Uh, uh-huh. I, I, I'm always amazed at writers who can just keep pushing through, uh, fatigue. I, I, it's, it's total diminishing returns to me. If I'm tired, I can't write, and I, I take naps. You know, I, I, you know, one of the great things about doing this uh, for a living is if I'm writing a script, I, if I'm tired, and I even did this during the day uh, in the writer's room, I would say literally at two thirty in the afternoon, three o'clock, nap time, and wow. I'd say, "We'll take a break. I need, I need thirty minutes to lay down. You guys can do whatever you want. I really don't care what you do. If you want to go out and get high, eat, eat a donut, smoke a cigarette, as long as you can come, you're not operating heavy machinery here. So whatever you guys need to do to come back here and be creative, go do it. Uh, I need to go take a nap. And I was never shy about that. Um, it was exactly like kindergarten. That's great. I would go and then take a nap and then come back. Because wow. otherwise I'm sitting there and I'm not really listening to what you're yeah. saying. Do you meditate uh, at all? I don't. You know, I, I, there was a time in my life when I did, and I probably should get back to that. Uh, what, I, what I found was I would meditate, and then I would fall asleep in the middle of the meditation. Right. So right. I, I think my body told me I just really needed that. You skip it and just go right to sleep. Yeah, right. I go right to the right to the very deep meditation. Right. Uh, I also, you know, I'm always amazed at writers. You know, when you read about like you know Hemingway would drink and write. I've never written anything. Uh, I, I couldn't focus it with a glass of wine. I was like, it's not. This is not the time to write. So I need mm. to be alert, awake. Interesting. Uh, you know, in terms of where I write, you know, generally it has to be quiet. I can't listen to music. I can't really have any distractions. I don't have to do it in the same place. I, I trained myself very early on to be able to write anywhere because I knew in the TV business, particularly, you may very well be writing in a staircase on a location, right. uh, in a stairwell, on a set, or wherever it needs to be done. So I, I've written anywhere and anywhere. I, I, you know, I'll drop, if I'm on a crazy deadline, I'll, I'll, drop my son at soccer or rather at tennis and sit in the parking lot and write in my car. And that's, that's fine too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that a lot of writers write, you know, with alcohol to sort of um, minimize the fear, you know, um, the fear of the blank page, the fear of not having yeah. anything to say that's worth, um, you know, anybody reading or watching, but you don't seem to have, you don't seem to suffer from that, uh, which is, yeah, which is amazing. I, I mean, which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, not that I don't have the fear. I just, you know, you just, it's, it's, it's just a luxury you can't afford. I mean, I just yeah. sort of, you know, if something needs to be done. I, you know, even if I, if I do feel blocked a little bit, a lot of times it's just you go look, you know, you've got, you just need to fall back on your basic skills. There is a way to do this where you know any scene has a beginning, a middle, and end. Uh, you know, I'll write a scene where I'll go, okay, I'm not particularly inspired here, but I will just get down the most basic information that I need to convey in the scene and then I'll go back to it and go back to it and try to find an interesting way into it. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just sort of when it has to get done, it has to get done. Yeah. Um, 
That's interesting. So, and then do you have any tricks? Like sometimes, um, you know, I do the same thing. I'll write down some of the, you know, the exposition that I need to get out, but I won't have any idea about how to make this the scene actually interesting. And then I'll go, I don't know, I'll go watch a scene from one of my favorite shows or I'll read a few scenes from a script or something. Do you have any tricks to get yourself um, into that place where you can turn the exposition into an actually interesting dramatic scene? No, I just sort of stand there and, and just think, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of take a break and sit and think. I don't necessarily seek out something uh, for inspiration. I, you know, sometimes it just sort of occurs to me, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll surf the internet, I'll just, I'll read the news, I'll watch some stuff and kind of just take a break and walk around. Right. And it's, it's sometimes in that walk around, it's it, where it just hits you. Totally. Uh, something only, you know, to introduce uh, itself into your brain and, you know, I was, I was having a catch with my son last week and, you know, in the middle of the catch, it was just a silent baseball going back and forth. And uh, the, the answer to a story problem occurred to me in the middle of the catch. That's great. I was like, that was great. It just, just came to me. I was like, oh, this is amazing. I love that. Did yeah. you run and did you leave your son and his mitt outside? <laughs> I hit him in the head with the ball. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I threw the ball over the fence and saw it and ran back in. Yeah. No, I, I actually As told him, I said, I just got a great idea. And uh, which is very self-serving. I was uh-huh. like, yeah, well, maybe it's not so great. Maybe you shouldn't say that. <laughs> and I, I told him what it was we talked about. I explained what the scene was. Oh, that's great. How we talked about it. And then he had no idea what I was talking about, of course. He's wow. like 10. But uh, I, that's why I wouldn't forget it. Still, though, he's got both his parents <laughs> in Hollywood. Uh, do your kids yeah. show any uh, inclination to, you know, join this crazy business? They, well, they're big fans of, 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 uh, of stories. Can they watch your stuff? Of, no, 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 not yeah. even remotely, not until I, like, in graduate school. <laughs> uh, yes, they're always vaguely yeah. aware of what I've done. It's funny, my son will come into my office, and uh, I'll be working, and, you know, he'll come in, and he'll give me a hug, and, and I realize what he was doing. Uh, he's looking over my shoulder to see what's on my screen, and, uh, you know, I said to him last week, I know what you do, and he said, yeah, I saw, like, five swear words. <laughs> so now when he comes in, I minimize my screen. And, Smart. And, uh, Talk to him, but love it. Um, all right, so now I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, we're going to play a clip from the Boardwalk Empire pilot, uh, which mm-hmm. you wrote, of course, which Martin Scorsese directed. So, um, just yeah. a little bit of setup. The scene starts on page thirty-seven of your script. Um, it's exterior Breakers Hotel, Atlantic City Boardwalk, night. Jimmy and Al sit outside smoking, waiting for their bosses to emerge. Now, Jimmy Darmody has already been introduced as twenty-two, intense and handsome. Al is a new character who Jimmy clearly doesn't know. He's only referred to as Al. No age or description given at this point. Uh, let's play the clip. Hey, let me ask you something. A guy like Rothstein, what's a fellow like that worth? Him? Ten million at least. On the level? He's as big as they come. Christ, Luciano's sitting on a half a million. I know that for a fact. Got to spread on Park Avenue. You make that much running card games? Cards, hijacker. He's a fucking dope peddler. Did six months for pushing heroin a couple of years back. But you only did six months? Yeah, he bought a judge. All right. He's half a million dollars. You imagine that? How old is he? What is he, like our age? 22, 23 maybe. But you don't agree. I'm Johnny's muscle. Who gives a fuck what I think? Tonight. If you get in trouble, don't call me. You call my brother. And so what you want to do, just ask for a lolly. He'll be expecting you. I'd wish you luck, but it sounds like you don't need it. We make our own luck. True enough. Hey, nice talking to you, huh? You too. Jimmy Darmody. Al Capone. All right. 
I love that scene so much. And, uh, you know, at, at the end of that scene, that was Nucky Thompson, played by Steve Buscemi, walking out um, with Rothstein in the background. Um, but, you know, I'm just wondering, what, what can you tell us about that scene? It's such a fantastic moment in the pilot. Well, it was a, thank you very much. It was a, the pilot was it was such great fun to write. Um, you know, obviously, I got to work. This was the first time I got to work with Martin Scorsese, which was just you know a, a, truly a dream come true. Uh, when I had pitched him uh, the idea that uh, we would do a series maybe set in the Prohibition era, he sparked to it immediately because that was the one era in the you know gangster dome that he hadn't really explored and, and was very intrigued oh, by it. So uh, I, I knew that uh, you know we were going to focus on the character Nucky Thompson, who was the corrupt Trevor Jucky Johnson. In reality, was the, the real guy's name. He was the corrupt treasurer of Atlantic City, which of course uh, is a very famous uh, seaport town. And when alcohol became legal, that's where all the alcohol came from the ocean. So here you have a guy who's already corrupt running a city right on the Atlantic Ocean. So I knew Prohibition was going to be the, the key to this whole thing. Uh, so the great thing was that the, the series then began when Prohibition began in 1920. So all of the players in the gangster world in 1920 uh, were, were there now for the for the taking in terms of, of dramatizing that. Right. Uh, right. The big guns were Arnold Rothstein, of course, Johnny Torrio in Chicago, and this kid who worked for him, a guy named Al Capone, who would relocated to Chicago uh, fairly uh, recently, uh, who was about 19 or 20 years old. So for me, the great gift was that I got to tell the story of Al Capone at a time when no one knew who he was. Right. So instead of being the Al Capone we all see in movies, the guy cigar chopping, white fedora, king of the hill, this was the fat kid right. driving right. somebody else's truck. That's great. And I had an opportunity to just introduce him as a guy. And it was great. He didn't even need a name. He was just Johnny's driver. Um, and of course, it's not until the end of that scene where we know who Al Capone is, but he doesn't even know who he is yet. Right. And it, it was such a great introduction. And for me, what was so wonderful was that, you know, the audience didn't see it coming. Uh, no, so no, many no. people were surprised until he says Al Capone, that you have no idea who this is. And it's so and satisfying. Go, oh, of is. course. Yeah. And they perfect sense that that's who this guy is. And then you look at him and go, yeah, obviously. Right. Uh, and look, he's got a scar, and you don't even notice that, uh, which is really, uh, for me, you know, a, a great way to introduce a character that was, again, huge fun to write because we, you know, it wasn't until the very end of the series that he came into his own as, you know, as out the Al Capone we know him know and either love or hate, right. depending on your take on it. But but that introduction, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's it's sort of that perfect blend of both um, inevitable and surprising when you find out who he is. Did you, do you have any memory of, did you rewrite it 20 times? I mean, you know, the introduction just came out. No, 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 that was, came out. that was it. And I remember I stood five feet away from those guys when they did it. Uh, I was interesting, Stephen Graham, you know, who's from Liverpool, uh, you know, in doing the pilot, uh, it, it, the accent was very challenging for him. Uh, we had but one of our uh, one of our crew members, a guy named Charlie Sharon, uh, who was from from uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Queens, was was uh, Stephen's unofficial dialogue coach. Charlie would do the dialogue for him, and, and you know, he would say, "Say it again, say it again." And he'd say it, and then Stephen would get it in his head, and he'd do it. But it, as the years went by, Stephen became great at it. But it was very difficult for him in the beginning trying to get a you know that Brooklyn thing where he talks right. out of the side of his mouth. It no, was I didn't a little know. unnatural, but he, he he got it. And the actor's from Liverpool. I don't know. So he sounds like a Beatle. He sounds like Ringo or something in real life. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Well, that was, was funny when we'd be shooting a scene and he would break character 
you go from talking like Al Capone to then sounding like one of the Beatles. It's amazing. And then jump back into Al Capone. That's great. It's always um, funny. But just, I mean, I love the scene. I love how these two kids are marveling at someone their own age being worth all that money. You know, it feels like it's, you know, it's the American dream, but it's so clearly the sure. wrong dream. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, and, you know, not dissimilar at all to what happens today with, with drug dealers and kids getting involved uh-huh. in that life. Totally. Um, yeah, just a masterful scene. I loved it. Um, but I mean, speaking of, uh, you know, Al Capone and all these historical figures, I'm curious what the research process is like for you, because, you know, shows you've written Boardwalk Empire, Vinyl, Wolf of Wall Street movies, um, they all take place in different historical periods. So how do you go about finding the language, the patterns of speech? Are consultants helpful? Do you interview real people? Do you just rely on books? You know, what's your process like? Yeah, all, all of that. Uh, you know, I mean, I, it usually starts with a book uh, and then a bunch of books and then anything and everything that's available. For Boardwalk Empire, it was uh, books, uh, you know, historical books about the period, novels of the period, uh, you know, were very helpful, uh, newspaper articles, uh, any films that existed, uh, not only, you know, where I really wanted was movies made in the in the era they were made, not movies about the 1920s, but movies that were made in 1920, right, right. Uh, whatever silent films to see how pe- documentary footage is really helpful. So you really see how people dressed in real life, uh, the music of the time period, and you know anything you could get in terms of colloquialisms. Newspaper articles are very helpful in terms of how people actually really spoke, as opposed to yeah. the uh, fancified version of how people spoke. You know how screenwriters would do it, or totally. uh, how novelists would do it. Uh, same thing for vinyl. You know, you, you know. Thank God for the internet. I don't know how people did research. You know, prior to the early 1990s, but you know, I mean, vinyl. I would fall down this you know internet rabbit hole, looking at clips of different bands from the era and listening to songs. And there's so much just there at your fingertips. It, it's incredible. Uh, I've also relied heavily on consultants. On Boardwalk Empire, I got. You know, it was almost like kismet. Uh, and I had spoken at Columbia University in uh, in the early days of The Sopranos. And the guy he was a graduate student uh, who ran the program that night. And he and I kept in touch over the years. And when I was getting, just had written the Boardwalk Empire pilot, he happened to email me and ask me what I was working on. So I told him I'm doing this show set in uh, Atlantic City. And he said, oh, wow, you got to meet my friend Ed McGinty, who's a, a fourth-generation Atlantic City native, uh, who was actually one of the grad students who was there the night you spoke, and he's actually looking for a job. So I met Ed McGinty, you know, at a diner in L.A., and he showed up the first at the meeting with a, uh, a shopping bag full of photographs from Atlantic City, hmm. including one of his grandfather, who was a bellman at the Ritz Hotel when the real Nucky lived there. Oh, wow. That's and awesome. I said, you're hired. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> said, if you will come on and be my researcher. And he did. Now he was with us for, for the run of the show, and he actually became an actor on the show. Ed is this big, burly Irishman with a mustache, and he was sitting in the writer's room one day, and I said, you know, you look like you could be on the show. And he said, I said, can you act? And he's like, not really. I said, well, no matter. Uh, and it turns <laughs> out he actually he could act. Okay. He was very good. He actually became... He was Ward Boss Boyd, one of Nucky's guys oh, wow. in, uh, in season one and two. And uh, he was actually he was terrific and hugely helpful, hugely wow. helpful. Has he gone on to act in anything else? Did you uh, start his career? He, I think he's done he's done a couple of little things, but he's predominantly a writer, director. Oh. And uh, he's uh, living back out in L.A. as I am 
too. That's awesome. So interesting that you watch silent movies. Um, I did a pilot last year uh, for USA that took place in 1969, and I found way more helpful than reading any books about 1969. We're reading, you know, Philip Roth's uh, Portnoy's Complain, you know, books yeah. that took place, you know, that were actually written in the period. That's how you get the vernacular. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, things that you, you need something, you know, at the time. Otherwise, it, it's, you know, people reminisce and, you know, it, it, they, they sugarcoat things right. the, way, the way things were and, yeah, it's not until you actually really get right back into that time period that you realize. You know, it's interesting. You watch, you know, most bad things about the 60s. You would think that people said groovy every other word. Right. You know, yeah, the exactly. slang. That was another thing with Boardwalk. I, you know, I tried to really pull back on the slang. You know, you got to really use that like a very powerful spice. You know, occasionally people would slip into something or, or an expression. But for the most part, you, right. just, you can't just jam all that stuff in. Right. It sounds cliche. Totally. Um, so on the last few shows you've written for, uh, that, you've, that you've written and created, I mean, you know, there are podcasts dissecting every episode, there are weekly recaps, there are analytical chapters and books. I'm just curious, do you, do you read any of the criticism about your show? Does it affect how you write? Um, uh, I try not to. Um, there's just so much out there. I mean, there's just so many yeah. uh, opinions and, and there's just so much cyberspace that seems to need to be filled up with words and thoughts and opinions about every single thing right. it can drive you insane i mean you, and if you if you wanted to make a light your life's work about reading what people think about your show or the opinions about everything you can there's plenty of you can do it you can right. spend all day doing that i'd be lying if i said i never read it i'd be lying if i said i wasn't really pleased at some of the things i read and i'd be lying if i said i wasn't really pissed off at some of the things i read sure. uh, you know that I, you feel like you're just they don't even understand what they're writing they don't even understand the point of what they're criticizing that sort of stuff but i really try to avoid it i find yeah. almost no good comes of it uh you know and, and you know it's human nature too you know you read a hundred positive comments and then you read the one negative one and it's the one negative one that stays with you right of course and, yeah. and that could be about anything be about your haircut tv show yeah. you know whatever you know and it's, it's just it, it's it's hard to to not want to read and be curious but uh, you know it, it's Again, you you would be better off spending your time doing almost anything else. Right. No, yeah. I mean, you really do seem to, to stay away from it. I remember, you know, we had dinner one night in New York, and I asked you if you had seen, uh, I think that day, Vulture.com had put up uh, a video of the, the 20 most interesting murders on Boardwalk Empire. And I asked you if you had seen it, and you looked at me like I was a crazy person. I'm like, of course you're not going to watch all that, you know, fan fiction stuff about Boardwalk Empire. Um, <laughs> I mean, there'd just be, yeah, you'd spend your life doing it. It's too much. Well, the other, the other thing, too, is like, you know, yeah, I mean, I I haven't even seen Boardwalk Empire since it went off the air. I hadn't seen the I haven't seen The Sopranos since it went off the air because I you know I can I can fall down that rabbit hole again and you know life is short you know I don't want to you know at some point when my kids are old enough I'm sure I will watch it all with them but I, I just don't have the time right you know I want to I want to go on to whatever the next thing is I want to spend my time doing that and uh, you know and and not to take anything away from the, from those shows or the stuff I've done but. I don't see the point of going back and reliving the glory days of, of things that were that I did when I say, all right, let's try to figure out what the next thing is. Right. Yeah, completely. Um, so on, on this podcast, you know, we're, we're mostly focused, as you can tell, on craft uh, rather than breaking in stories. Um, mm -hmm. However, uh, I would like to make an exception for the story that you told me on campus last year about your first agent. Uh, if yeah. you could tell us a little bit about that. It's just such an incredible sure. story. I um, – 
moved to LA in 1991, uh, and I was told, "Well, you've got to, you got to get an agent." And I said, "Great, you know, I'll, I'll just write some scripts and I'll get an agent." What I didn't realize was it's it's almost impossible, unlike yeah. most careers where if you ask me, "Well, you know, how do I become a dentist?" I'd say, "Oh, well, you go get a bachelor of science degree, and then you got to go to dental school, and then you got to pass the dental boards, and you." go, uh, you know, intern somewhere, and then you're a dentist. You know, say, well, how do I be a writer? Well, it, nobody really knows. There's right. no set career path. You Everybody has a different path. Film school, you can not go to film school, you can get an agent, not get a million different ways. But you, one thing that everybody agrees on is you need representation. Uh, but there's no magic ticket. So I wrote several sitcom scripts because I wanted to start out as a sitcom writer, and people who read my work said, yeah, you really definitely show promise, you got to get an agent. I said, okay, I know. So I would you know, I wasn't shy. I cold called agents. This is actually pre-internet, so there's actually a thing called the Hollywood Agents Directory. And I would get an agent on the phone, somebody at William Morris or CAA or wherever it was, and I'd say, yeah, hi, my name's Terry Winter. I'm a sitcom writer. I just got out here from New York. They have a couple of specs. Will you read them? You, most of the time, was no, sorry, we don't take unsolicited clients. Occasionally, I would have a conversation with an agent. Okay, fine, send me your script. Call me in a week. Call him in a week. It would take me another week to get him on the phone. By the third week, he'd say, who are you again? And I'd say, we talked a couple of weeks ago. My name's Terry Winter. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't yeah, I haven't gotten to it. You know, I get 100 scripts a week. And it was just maddening. This was going on for months. And I finally said, this is crazy. There's got to be a way for me to get an agent. So I went down to the Writers Guild. And uh, at the Writers Guild, there was a list of agents, generally new agents or young agents, who would take unsolicited material from people. Because generally what happens is you would send a script into ICM, for example. It would come back in the mail unopened. They do not take unsolicited material. So these agents, though, were people who were trying to build a client roster. And this was sheer coincidence. There was a guy on the list who was who sat three seats away from me during law school. His name is, uh, his name is Doug. That's all I'll tell you. <laughs> so he, because I don't want him inundated with totally calls. Fair. He's still out there. But anyway, Doug was a guy who sat three seats away from me throughout law school. So I called him up and I said, well, what are you doing? Are you an agent now? And he said, no, I'm actually a real estate lawyer in New York. Uh, but I used my money that a, cl a client wrote a book on real estate, and I used my fee to get bonded as an agent. But I don't know anything about being an agent. I said, great. Well, guess what? You're my agent. That's perfect. It's amazing. So he said, what do you mean? I said, I'm going to create an agency, name it after you, in Los Angeles. I'm going to get a mailbox, mailboxes, et cetera, mailing address. I'll get a voicemail system. I'm going to pay for everything, letterhead. I'm going to submit my scripts under your letterhead. And if I get anything, I'll just give you 10% like you're my regular agent. And he said, great, sounds good. Just, you know, don't do anything too stupid. I said, you got it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so I did exactly that. I created, created this phony agency, and I took a day off from my day job, and I hit every sitcom office in Los Angeles, which at the time in 1993, I think this was, uh, there were about 30 sitcoms on the air. But you were this driving the, to each one? Yeah, well, I would well, just go onto the lot, and this, of course, right. was back in the days when you could do something like this. I would, for example, pull onto the Warner Brothers lot, and I'd tell the security guard, yeah, hi, I'm the I'm the messenger from this agency. I need to drop off these scripts. They go, okay, go ahead. And they just let you on the lot. This is criminal. And there. I would just go into every single sitcom office, and this was back in the days when uh, they had that TGI uh, Friday lineup. It was like Full House sure. and Family, Family Matters, Matters yeah. and all those shows. There were dozens of them. And uh, I would just show up and, you know, Family Matters, for example, and say, yeah, hi, I'm the messenger from this agency. Here's the scripts you wanted, and give it to whoever was sitting behind the desk. And I hit all of them, 30 of them. So 
Uh, and wait, I'm sorry, what script were you handing in at that point? What was your sample? I had three specs. I had um, a Dougie Hauser script. Amazing. A Dougie Hauser spec, a Cheers, and and a Seinfeld. Wow. Uh, I want to read again, Cheers. 1993. And uh, so that was it. And that was everything I had at that point. So hand them in. I wait a couple of weeks. And one Friday afternoon, lo and behold, I have a voicemail uh, on the agency voicemail line. And it's a, from a woman. She says, hey, hi, Doug. My name is Winifred Hervey Stallworth. I am the executive producer of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. We oh got God. Terry Winter's scripts. And I'd like to talk to you about maybe having him come in to pitch an idea. It's and incredible. I went, oh, my God. So I called Doug in New York. I was in L.A. It was like 4.30 in the afternoon. And, of course, in New York, it's now close to 8 o'clock at night. And he's gone for the weekend. And I thought, oh, shit, now I have to wait till Monday, and uh, it's going to be forever. And, uh, and then it occurred to me, Doug doesn't really know anything about being an agent. So why do I need to wait for him? I'll just call this woman and say I'm Doug, <laughs> and I'll just be my own agent. So that's what I did. I called her back, and uh, she, she said, said, yeah, hi, yeah, hi, Doug. And I had no idea what agents said, did, or what I was supposed to do. I figured I'd just wing it. And uh, she was very nice. And she said, yeah, I read Terry's scripts. Said, you know, but, you know, uh, Fresh Prince is, a, is kind of a teenage-oriented show. Does he have, like, one more kind of teen-oriented thing? I said, oh, my God, it's amazing you should say that. He just finished an incredible episode of The Wonder Years, uh, which was total bullshit. I had not written a Wonder Years script. <laughs> and she said, oh, great. I said, but Terry's away for the weekend at, at his beach house. Um, this was from the, my basement apartment I was calling. I said, can right. I get it to you, like, on Tuesday? And she said, yeah, yeah, Tuesday will be fine. So I hung up on Friday night. And from Friday night until Tuesday, I cranked out a one year's oh my episode. God. I just, and it's funny, this is back, again, pre-internet. I had to go to drive to Hollywood Boulevard. There used to be guys who would sell copies of produced shows. So I had to buy a one year script for $5 to see the formatting of their show. Like, how do they format it? So I wanted to be consistent with how they how they presented their scripts, you know, what it said for the slug lines, et cetera. So I bought a one-year script. I had that, and then I used that as the format. And then I just came up with a story about Kevin getting a tattoo or wanting to get a tattoo. And then on Tuesday afternoon, I threw the messenger hat back on and went back into the office and uh, gave it to them. They had me in a couple of weeks later to pitch an idea, and that actually became kind of my first break. That's incredible. Um, and that's incredible, just the, the pressure that you seem to thrive under, um, giving yourself just a few days to do it. I mean, besides the chutzpah of everything in that story about, you know, uh, pretending to be an agent, giving yourself an agent when you didn't have one. I mean, that's just sort of the ambition and the mm -hmm. um, unwillingness to take no for an answer. I mean, it's just it's incredible. Um, yeah. But when you but say yeah, yeah, you have to do it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess that's right. Um, but when you say it led to your sort of your first break, um, did you end up writing on? I don't. Did you write on? I Fresh did. Prince? I ended up selling them a story uh, that they ultimately didn't use, but it, it got me an entree to uh, cutting. Years later, two of the producers who were in that room mm -hmm. uh, gave me a job on a show called Sister Sister. Years later, wow. and what they, what they told me when they hired me there three years later, they said we almost hired you on Fresh Prince. What you didn't know. Was the minute you left the room, we said we got to hire this guy, and we didn't have it in our budget. We didn't have enough money oh to God. hire you, but we all, we would we wanted to hire you right away. Wow. And I was like, God, thank God I didn't know that because I would have jumped out a window. <laughs> um, it ultimately was another year or so before I got my actual first job. I got right. accepted about a month later after that meeting to something called the Warner Brothers Sitcom Writers Workshop. Oh, that's so funny. I did the Warner Brothers Drama Writers Workshop. Oh, you kidding? Yeah, yeah. that's funny. The Drama Writers Workshop didn't exist when I did the sitcom writers, but it was, oh, wow. that was an absolute godsend. That program in the Drama Writers Workshop, too, there were very few programs like that in, in Hollywood that will identify writers for... What that does is that identifies 
15 or so writers for the community of a pool of thousands of people who want to be writers. But right. what Warner Brothers does is say, we think these 15 people are people who have talent and you should watch. So suddenly the phone starts ringing, real agents call you, and they, they want to see who are you. You just got to set up this program. Warner Brothers thinks you're talented. Can I read your work? And that, yeah. that really opened a lot of doors for me, and that led to my first job. Well, it's also just a lot of fun. I don't know how the sitcom uh, one is run, but the Warner Brothers Drama Writers Workshop, we had, you know, Aaron Sorkin came and spoke to us, you know, just a group of like 15 of us. He just you know, yeah. spoke to us yep. for an hour, and Greg Berlanti came and Mark Cherry came and it was just incredibly it's just a fun experience um, yeah we had, it was the same thing uh, for, for us it was sitcom showrunners uh, same deal once a week we met and during the course of the, the 10 week program you wrote a spec I wrote a Fraser spec and that actually mm-hmm. led to my ironically led to my first job on a drama <laughs> which interesting. you know they called me in at the, at the end of it they said we have an interesting opportunity we have a show we think you'd be great for it's not a sitcom and this is no reflection on your comedy writing i said well what's it about he said well it's a, it's a one-hour drama that has comedy in it it's about a blue-collar guy who's a lawyer who goes to work for a stuffy law firm which is essentially my life story right and i said do you think you could write that i said yeah probably <laughs> and right. uh, that became my first job wow, wow, wow. Um, all right well we've taken up a lot of your time here um but one last question before we go uh, mm-hmm. New York Magazine recently came out with their rankings of the 100 best screenwriters of all time, and you were one of the writers pulled to create those rankings. So I'm just really curious what you thought of the list. Who was your number one? It's funny, you know. After I after I turned that in, um, I realized I left off Patty Chayefsky. Oh my! I was so angry. Patty Chayefsky wasn't in the top ten. You're the reason. I am the reason. I handed <laughs> it in, and about a day later, I was at the gym, and I went, "Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah." He was like 14 and I or knew something. It while I was writing the list, I, I just <laughs> I, I, I went, I, "Who am I forgetting? I know I'm forgetting somebody." Well, how did and, you uh, come up with your list? Did you just off the top of your I, head? You know, I just sort of I just sort of went back and thought about all the movies I, I yeah. loved over the years, and the movies that really impacted me. And really, you know, just really like changed me as a writer and made me think. And you know, the times and you know, like I remember walking out of, uh, you know, a char, you know, um, any Charlie Kaufman movie, yeah. you know, being John Malkovich and going, oh my god, yeah. you know, then being depressed for two days. Yeah. You know? so like, I'll never, you know, that things like that, or you know, The Verdict, or movies that oh, made me yes. like. Man, want man. to get out of my chair and that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was just really that, you know, the things that, you know, just looking back to film history about the things that I, totally. I recommend to people and, you know, the things that have consistently made me laugh, you know, though that, that sort of stuff. But, uh, the Chayefsky thing, I was like, oh, God, <laughs> I know. I was such an idiot. I was bummed saying to that. go back and amend my list, but it's too late. So, so who was your number one? Who's your greatest screenwriter of all time? Oh, man. Or um, you can give us a couple of your top three. My top three. I mean, and you know, you're going to think I'm. Uh, you uh-huh. know, I'm, I'm just saying this, but it, it, it's Scorsese and Pileggi. I mean, I have to say that those are the. You know, those are the movies that I consistently go back to. Yeah. You know, Goodfellas. Um. You know, Raging Bull. Well, that's that Scorsese. Yeah. Um. You know. Uh. You know, Casino. Those are the things I go back and forth. Yeah. Coppola is right up there. Yeah. Uh, you know, Rod Sterling, even though he's not really, you know, considered, you know, necessarily a, a screenwriter, although he has written his screen, is certainly up there. Hmm. Um, Billy Wilder. Yes, who got um, number one. Yeah, did he get number one? He's number one. Yeah, the top ten are uh, Billy Wilder, number one, mm-hmm. then the Coen brothers, Robert yeah. Town, Tarantino, yep. Coppola, yep. William Goldman, who's too uh-huh. low in my opinion, sure, then Charlie Kaufman, uh, mm-hmm. then Woody Allen, who's a little bit on the low side, and then mm-hmm. Ernest Lehman. 
yeah, I mean, those guys are all on my list, certainly. Um, and then every one of them is, is great for, you know, I mean, Woody Allen, yeah. in terms of, uh, you know, batting average. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, the guy seriously. has a body of work and you know, consistently, you know, once a year. And, you know, look, you can take any Woody Allen movie ever made. Right. You will laugh. There's something in it that will make you laugh out loud. You know, to be able to do that consistently and also dramatically, he's incredible, too. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, look, I, I think I even agree. said if Annie Hall were the only movie he ever wrote, he'd, he'd still be on my list. <laughs> totally agree. Forget no, Zelig, forget yeah. Manhattan. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Hannah and her exactly. sisters. Yeah. yeah, really amazing. Wow. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Harry. It was so great to talk to you. Absolutely. My pleasure. And um, I'm happy to do it and uh, okay. happy to always talk to you and hope I get to see you again in person. Soon. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you know when I'm in L.A. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that's Terry Winter. Amazing guy. The story about pretending to be his own agent. I wish I could have done that when I was starting out. And I'm still blown away by his waking up at 3.30 a.m. every day for two weeks to write his Sopranos episode and killing it, changing the course of his entire life. Also, apologies. I read that New York Magazine list of the 100 best screenwriters wrong. I left out Nora Ephron at number nine, which I'm ashamed of because she wrote one of my favorite screenplays of all time, When Harry Met Sally. One of my prized possessions is the first draft of that screenplay, when it was called Words with Love. It's humiliating for me as a writer to see how close she was to the final shooting script in that first draft. And yeah, Patty Chayefsky is shamefully all the way at number 14, right behind Aaron Sorkin. If you want to get a dose of both, you can look at the pilot for Studio 60, which is Sorkin's homage to Network, one of Chayefsky's masterpieces. I'd also check out Marty, by the way, which is maybe my favorite Chayefsky. Thanks so much to our producers here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Phil Kearney and Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and review it on iTunes, which will take about 10 seconds of your time. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week.